Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Those are verses 3 to 7 of Psalm 86, which along with Psalm 85 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, September the 22nd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. It's a sort of a difficult day in some ways because this would have been Will's 30th birthday today. So we, our son who, who died about uh, five months ago, and so it's, it's tough to, to think about that and to, to remember that. So keep us in prayer today. Um, we are continuing our look at the book of Esther in chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. We are still in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, verses 14 to 30, and then in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, verses 11 to 20. <clears throat> so the, we, we remember now that, that Haman had constructed a gallows on which uh, he anticipated uh, with great glee the... Uh, to hang Mordecai the Jew because he failed to bow down before him and worship him and treat him with the respect he felt that he, he had was deserved. He was going to hang Mordecai for this failure uh, to do this, but he had to get the king's permission to do it, and, and he, he came at the wrong time. As while the king was looking at the books or the records of, of the things that had happened in the kingdom, and one of those was is that Mordecai the Jew, which is how he's referred to multiple times, um, he, he had saved the king's life, and so the king honored him. Haman went back home and then was told by his uh, wife and friends, it sounds like you're in deep trouble. It's not, you know, it, it, and the undercurrent there has to do with, well, you know, everything's going Mordecai's way. That This is karma is not going to go in your direction here. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, this is the third time, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who's dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So Esther has set him up. In this way, she has sort of led him to believe that he had her confidence, and so she brings him twice now into the palace for a banquet with just the three of them, cozy little scene, and now she turns and exposes him for the evil that he has done. There's a certain cunning in Esther that I think we miss, and and she sought no one's counsel on this. You remember early on we talked about the the reality that, that she obeyed uh, Mordecai in whatever Mordecai said to do, and then she obeyed the the uh, eunuch who was over the quote sort of harem as they got ready to go before the king and determine which one would be the new queen. But now she's taken her own counsel, 
Of course, we know there's more to it than that. She's taking counsel from the Lord in these things, but she's not seeking other people's opinions. And so she does things in such a way that it that it's quite cunning and, and it's revealing that she has won his confidence and caused him to, to let down his guard and, and be the person that he really is, which is this covetous uh prideful man who can't wait for what he's already won, which is the massacre of the Jews to happen. He, he had to he, he had to get Mordecai out of his sight immediately. And the whole reason that he wanted the massacre of the Jews to start with was because he hated Mordecai. One man. One man would have been the destruction of the entire Jewish race within the kingdom of Ahasuerus because this man's pride was so great that Mordecai failing to do the things that he thought he ought to do um, was an insult to his pride such that he had determined that he would rid the kingdom of this entire race of people. And now he's gone too far, overreach, and the queen has now exposed him for who he is. And the king arose in his wrath and the wine, from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now there's, there's a, a sort of an echo of the Joseph story, right, where, where he is with Pharaoh's daughter, or, or Pharaoh's wife, sorry, and, uh, and gets accused of attempting to do something. Now the, 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 the wife had set him up in this whole thing uh, because she was jealous of him. And now here Esther is on the couch and this uh, Haman comes and falls on the couch and it looks for all the world like he's trying to seduce her in some way. And that's what the king sees. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face we don't know who they are. We assume it's these eunuchs because the next one is then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged him on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Still got a problem because he has issued the edict, um, which cannot be controverted, for all the Jews to be killed. And they were to be killed wherever they were by whoever wanted to kill them. It's sort of like coyotes here in the States. There's not a season on hunting coyotes because they're considered to be so problematic that it's it's okay to hunt and kill them anytime you like. And that's exactly what has been done here. Now, would the people have risen up and killed the Jews? Would they have had that kind of... Um, attitude towards them that they would have been willing to kill them well it depends is kind of the answer you know i was in rwanda several times within the first few years after the genocide that happened in 1994 and yes it's possible that you can if you dehumanize people enough then then they people fellow citizens will destroy them and that's what hitler did successfully in germany it's what um people attempt to do constantly in dehumanizing people, um, in politics, in America, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. It's completely dehumanizing language. They did it against the unvaccinated. They've done it against all kinds of other people, and it goes both ways. You know, it's I've heard way too many people on the right 
dehumanize people on the left as well as morons and, and non-thinking individuals and all this other kind of stuff. And, that, and so it goes both ways. And we need to be careful about that, and we need to back away from that. And as as people of, of the Christian faith, we need to back far away from that, and we need to call it out whenever it happens on either side. We need to be very careful about this. <clears throat> in the gospel today, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee after the temptations in the wilderness, which was yesterday's lesson. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Listen to the postures here, because you stood to read and you sat to teach. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus deliberately chose this passage, and now the expectation is that he will teach what this means. And so you could, you could imagine after the report has gone out, after they've heard some of the things that Jesus has done, because we know, and we know that he has done some things by now, even though Luke doesn't give those to us in detail, those for us, you're going to see in a minute why I say that. But, but they know. It's not just, oh, he was baptized and this dove came down and, and landed on him. No, there's more to what they know and what they expect than that. So when Jesus makes this, reads this particular passage, everybody knows this is a messianic passage. And so they, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now he's going to teach. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Based on what they knew, what they had heard, the rumors, and then also this passage, he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a mic drop, to say the least. Because what he's saying is, I'm him. I'm that guy. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's coming to do these things. So the expectation would have been, okay, he's going to sit on the Davidic throne, and therefore he's going to liberate us from the Romans. And when he said that, they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? This is always the default, right? I mean, we know him. We, he, he grew up right here. We know exactly who he is. He, he's, it's just Joseph's boy, right? That's who he is. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So what he's saying is, is that there was this great famine in the land of Israel and and God wanted to bless somebody by sending this prophet to him and through that prophet, that there would be sustenance provided on a daily basis. And so it's daily bread, again, when he goes up here to Zarephath in Sidon, which is the land that Jezebel is from. It's a land that was characterized by Baal worship, the same Baal worship that Jezebel and Ahab were, had introduced into the northern kingdom at the same time and perverted the worship of the people. And so what Jesus is saying is, is that, that how many widows do you think there were in the land of uh, Israel at the time of Elijah in, in this famine? 
and, and yet God didn't send him to any of those. He sent him to this widow up in Sidon, in that pagan land up there, where Jezebel was from. So God couldn't find a righteous person in the land, so he sent him to Seraphath in Sidon to take care of the widow who was there. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Same thing, that, that there was a possibility that existed that God could do all these things, but for the lack of faith in his own people. So outsiders reaped the benefits of God's graciousness and his mercy and his love and his power, but not those inside. So this is a strong rebuke that, that saying, nope, you've rejected, you've already made up your minds, and so I can't, I can't and won't do these things among you. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath because they knew it was a word against them. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. You know, so again, what was the, the final temptation that Satan offered Jesus? Right? He took him up to the Temple Mount and said, throw yourself down because God's bound to take care of you. Here they take him out to the edge of a cliff so that they could throw him off the cliff but he just turned and walked straight through him. Now, was that a supernatural thing that happened there? Did they really intend to kill him in, in the same way that we looked at in the uh, Old Testament lesson? Would, the, would they have gone through with it once they got there? Would they have tried to put him to death? We know it wouldn't have happened, but would they have actually done that? Or once they got there, would they have pulled themselves back from the precipice and not done this thing? In the... Uh, Acts lesson today. Remember, Paul is in Ephesus, and, and he had been sort of, he left the synagogue and went and started speaking in the hall of Tyrannus, um, and he was doing this every day for a couple of years, and it said that all the people in Asia then came and heard the, the teaching that Paul was doing. So here, and not in addition to the teaching, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a high priest, Jewish high priest named Sceva, were doing this. So, what you've got then is they believe there's some sort of magic in the name of Jesus, and that 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 magic can be harnessed simply by saying the name, sort of like open sesame, right? That, that you've got to now it, it has to open. There's an obligation that if I use this name, then you have to leave. Well, if you don't have the Holy Spirit and you don't have the power in you, then then it's a dangerous thing to try and, and deal with demonic spirits when you don't know him and you're not known by him. And so what happens? But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? So I, I, don't, I don't have a clue who you are. And so I have no fear of you because you don't have any power. There's power in the name of Jesus, but only, only to the extent to which we stand in relationship with him, and we're covered in his blood. And then we have the protection, and we have the power to use the name. But 
only, but it's not magic again, and it's too often, this is how it ends up being taught, is this sort of name it, claim it, word faith thing, that if I use the name of Jesus, then, then he's obligated to do whatever I bind him to do. If I declare it, then it happens. No, 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 no. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If it had been true, then Paul would have never, ever suffered. The disciples would never have suffered. They would have just declared this stuff to the heavens and it would have happened, right? That's not how it works. It's a lie. And we need to, to anybody who believes that, they need to be told it's a lie. If, 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 if it were that sort of magic, would Jesus have ever gone to the cross? You know, he, he, there would have been some other way. He would have done what the Gnostics said he did, which was that his spirit would jump out of his body and go into the body of Joseph of Arimathea. The the spirit of Joseph would jump into the Jesus body, and he would be crucified. The body of Jesus would be crucified, but the soul and the spirit of of Joseph of Arimathea, no. No. (laughs) Period. You can see this maybe gets me a little bit worked up. No. But that's what people are being told to do, is what the seven sons of Sceva did. When, when you want something just out of your spirit, then you're not operating in the spirit of God. And so your declaration is absolutely meaningless whenever you do that. And you don't bind God. You can't bind God to do a thing. It's not possible. God's not obligated to, to fulfill your wish, dreams, and desires. That is not what happens. That's using the name of Jesus in a way that, that has way more to do with witchcraft than it does with Christianity. So the man in whom the evil spirit was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I mean, they were fortunate, right? They were very fortunate that that's all that happened. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Everybody knew about this. Everybody saw this. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. See, these these idiots who were trying to do this had no fear of the Lord. They didn't understand what they were doing. And, and so what happened was fear fell on these people that says it can, the name can be misused. And when you misuse the name, it's a dangerous thing. So the fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. For what reason? Right? I mean, you look at that thing and you say, well, you know, it, why would why would that extol the name of Jesus? And, and it's because there's power in that name because we see it when Paul invokes it, but we don't see the power any other way. If a random person tries to invoke the name of Jesus to try and deal with demonic entities, then the, and if they don't know him and they're not standing positionally in his righteousness, if you're not known to him, if you're not covered in the blood of Jesus, then you have just stepped into a realm you don't want to step into without being much better armed than you are. So also then, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So these people are already believers, right? So, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. I mean, there was a... There's an idol worship in Ephesus that, that kind of went beyond what anybody could ever have imagined. It's where the, the place of Diana worship was. So you get these priestesses 
uh, in there. You get the this this entire mess of magic is is in this area. So what Paul's changing the culture of an area completely through the power of the gospel, preached, taught, and demonstrated by healing, and that's what we need in this culture. People need to see that the that the Jesus we proclaim has power to change lives, has the power that he claimed he had in that reading from Isaiah in the synagogue at Nazareth. That is the Jesus we need to present to people. We, they need to see people healed. They need to see people um, changed dramatically in their lives. It's important that we understand and believe the power that's there because mostly what we do is is we don't even see the power we don't even see these things happening, and, and when we do, it becomes really intoxicating. And we want to see more and more and more, and so do those people out there. They need to see that there's power in our proclamation. They need to see the power in our lives as far as change lives are concerned, but they also need to see the power flowing from the church into the world in such a way that it renews the world through the healing power of the name of Jesus. And so at that point, we're told the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily because they had seen the power and they had experienced the truth.